0: Alright, guys, welcome back to our book study slash Bible study using John MacArthur's book, Christ's Call to Reform the Church. Uh, If you haven't listened to the, I did the introduction, part one on this, simply called Reforming the Church. And he breaks down here, Christ's Call to... What basically um, Christ's message to the seven churches that are in Revelation, um, Christ's plea to them of saying, hey, look, the loveless church, the persecuted church, the compromising church, the corrupt church, the dead church, the faithful church, and the lukewarm church, all these characteristics, um, the message is simple. You guys need to, to repent and turn from your ways and and redo this. So, I thought this would be a perfect thing to do now, considering the obviously the condition that we're looking at in the church today in our world. So, go check out part 1 before you jump into this one here in part 2. For those of you who have the book, I really highly recommend that you get it. We're not going to I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's He goes into some awesome church history here. So uh, I highly recommend you you getting it. It's not that expensive on Amazon. I think it was like under $15. Um, I'll do my best at trying to summarize for you what he says in these chapters, but I just, I really recommend you get it uh, so you can follow along. Uh, If not, I apologize, but we will we'll have our Bibles out here too, so everybody has one of those, so we know that we'll be able to um, you'll be able to follow along once we get to that point, which the beginning here in chapter one. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and read here because this kind of just sets the whole tone for this whole study and this whole idea going into these letters. So for those of you who haven't i read this little piece here of chapter 1. Have you ever heard of a church that repented? Not individuals, but an entire church that collectively recognized its congregational transgressions and openly, genuinely repented with biblical sorrow and brokenness? Sadly, you probably have not. For that matter, have you ever heard of a pastor who called for his church to repent and threatened his congregation with divine judgment if they failed to do so? It's not likely. Pastors today seem to have a hard enough time calling individuals to repent, let alone calling the whole church to account for their corporate sins. In fact, if a pastor were to be so bold as to to lead his own church to repent, he might not be the pastor for much longer. At minimum, he would face resistance and scorn from within the congregation. That inevitable backlash is likely strong enough to generate a kind of preemptive fear keeping most church leaders from ever considering a call for corporate repentance. That whole section right there is, um, yeah, have you honestly heard? I I answered an email today from somebody that uh, was asking a question if we have the opportunity to stay in our church and we have a voice in trying to, to turn it back to becoming a doctrinally sound church. Should we stay there and, and you know, attempt this or just, should we just let it go? I'm like, no, absolutely. You stay in there. If you, if you have a voice to be able to change and call them to repent and your, your leaders are willing to listen to your, you know, and willing to pray on and, and, and truly take a look at these things, then absolutely. Sadly, this is far from something that usually happens. And, uh, well, you know, he goes on here to kind of uh, explain this a little bit further. So we'll just continue reading. On the other hand, if a pastor or church leader has the temerity To call for another church, rather than his own to repent, he will almost certainly be accused of being critical, divisive, and overstepping his authority. He'll face a chorus of voices telling him to mind his own business, vilifying him, therefore clears the path for the confronted church to sidestep his admonition altogether. The fact is churches rarely repent. Churches that start down a path of worldliness, disobedience, and apostasy typically move even further from orthodoxy over time. They almost never recover their original soundness. Rarely are they broken over their collective sins against the Lord. Rarely do they turn aside from corruption, immorality, and false doctrine. Rarely do they cry out from the depths of their heart for forgiveness cleansing, and restoration. Most never even consider it because they have become comfortable with their condition. In reality, calling the church to repent and reform can be very dangerous. Church history is replete with examples. That's why, um, unfortunately, once a church has gone down a path of worldliness, disobedience, apostasy, it is... They stray over orthodoxy over this time, and they get comfortable where they're at, and they don't see that they're doing anything wrong, no matter what you're saying. It's almost—it's a form of progression where they've progressed past this, and you know your thoughts are old thoughts and old ways, and do no good at forwarding the kingdom of God. And that's a lot of times when you and they are solid in it. So while, yes, I I, I encourage people to stay in their church if they do have a voice, if you have a pastor that's willing to listen and willing to ask for forgiveness and and willing to go over, you know, absolutely. But you'd be one in a million if if you haven't. But if you do, awesome. You know, please let us know of your success story, um, you know, if you're one of these people that has. Like I said, I, I encourage you to, to to stay in and try and try to love these people and turn them back to um, the truth. But sadly, it's kind of a lost cause a lot of times. And a lot of the reason is, too, we're we're fighting against a a spiritual enemy here in this, a demonic enemy that we were told that was going to try to infiltrate the church and ruin the faith. So a lot of times we just have to be able to identify the same enemy that we're fighting against and um you know definitely just um pull people out of the deception from the enemy is is what our ultimate goal is he continues on here to give at the end of the paragraph here that I just read, he was explaining that the, here's the here's the thing with saying this is a this is rare and this is probably not going to happen. Is throughout church history, we see what happened with the Puritans, um, that with the Church of England. You, he goes on to speak of uh, the Reformation too as well, and he gives a lot of really really solid. Uh, information here on the Reformation explaining this. He continues on here to talk about the pathology of an apostate church and I think this will be a good place here to pick up a little bit because then as soon as uh, he talks about this he goes straight into starting kind of this revelation uh, study. So let me go ahead and read this here. And this is on page uh, twenty-three. For anybody who has the book, you skip to twenty-three. If you're online or and got your ebook, I have no idea what page this is. I assume it's the same. Consider the spiritual ground that is lost when the church surrenders bullet- biblical authority. If Scripture does not speak with absolute inerrant authority. The offer or of justification by grace through faith cannot be extended to desperate sinners. One can't argue for the sufficiency of Christ as the sacrifice for sins or his rule as the head of the church. One can't cling to the glorious truths of imputation that at the cross God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Without those truths, we have no guarantee that God's wrath has been satisfied. There can be no assurance of faith, no hope of heaven, and no confidence in the promises of God. On the other hand, doing away with the authority of Scripture, or merely subjugating it to the authority of men, purposely paves the way for false doctrine and false teachers to infiltrate the flock of God. It invites theological confusion, Elevating the words of fallible men over the inerrant word of God. How many times do we hear of that? It's designed to exchange the gospel of grace for a man-centered system of works righteousness. And it pollutes the purity of God's truth, clouding biblical doctrine with superstition, tradition, extra-biblical revelation, and demonic deception. That's a broad way to summarize the various deviations that have dominated the Roman Catholic Church since before the time of Luther. But it's also a fitting description of the Protestant Church today. If that sounds like an overstatement, consider these questions. What demonstrable difference is there between Titzel's indulgences and the holy water and anointed scraps of cloth peddled by charismatic charlatans to their vast audiences? What's the difference between a Pope who speaks ex cathedra and a pastor who exploits his own dreams and mental impressions as fresh revelation from the Lord? And what separates the worship of Mary and the veneration of the saints from the way today's self-proclaimed apostles visit the graves of their forebears to, quote, soak in, deceased, in the deceased anointing? Worse still, the same kind of rampant corruption and immorality the Roman church once were to conceal are now celebrated and encouraged by many Protestant congregations. Far from being known for their purity, many churches today go out of their way to embrace or imitate the debauchery of secular culture. Pastors exegete Hollywood mo- movies rather than scripture. sensitive often look and feel more like, more like a rock concert or burlesque show than a worship service. Celebrity-minded church leaders seem more interested in what's stylish and marketable than they are in what's sound and solidly biblical. Shockingly, there are even some ostensibly evangelical church leaders who are proud that their membership is open, welcoming, uber-tolerant, or even affirming towards sexual adulterers hard-hearted fornicators, impotent homosexuals, immoral immoral idol-worshippers, and even two forms of paganism. They are proud of it. Many more congregations are on a slower path to the same destination. While they might not openly celebrate immorality, they do nothing to drive it from their mindset. Sin is not confronted and church discipline is not faithfully practiced. Over time, the conscience, both individually and collectively, grows cold. Unconfessed sin becomes the norm and the church bears no discernible difference from the world. All that is evidence of a lack of submission to God's word and a decreasing discern from doctrinal truth and the purity of protection it produces. born from the conviction that true believers must separate from the from an apostate church protestantism had needed only a scant 500 years to cultivate its strains of apostasy much like the israelites in the book of judges the protestant church seems determined to repeat the mistakes of its past rather than learn from them paul's indictment of the churches of galatia applies so much applies to much of the evangelical church you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? It's Galatians 3, one. Your recent national survey revealed that 52% of evangelical Protestants believe that salvation comes by faith and works combined. Only 30% affirm Solified and Sola Scriptura. The Reformation is being undone by bewitched evangelical Protestants. The protest is largely over. Descent into apostasy doesn't happen overnight. The changes are slow and steady. Rejecting scripture's authority and priority is the first step, usually followed by a succession of compromises. Maybe we can be more relevant and inviting to the world if we don't take this verse or that sin too seriously. Once the church determines its purpose is to engage and attract the culture rather than to edify and equip the saints, it sets out on a path that will always lead to worldliness and apostasy. Not long ago, the pastor of one of the largest churches in America told church leaders that they should not let doctrine get in the way of winning people over. One sympathetic author summed up his exhortation succinctly. Don't put the theology above ministry. Churches today are invested in attracting sinners, are so invested in attracting sinners that they attempt to bury their theology under the welcome mat. That unbiblical model of outreach is the very thing dulling many churches' ability to reach the world with the gospel. Filling the pews with comfortable, unaffected believers is the fastest way to confuse and corrupt the work of the church. That's a huge statement. God has not called His people out of the world to chase its trends in vain attempts to seem relevant. The church cannot be salt and light in this wretched in this wretched world if we are indistinguishable from worldly people. See Matthew five thirteen through sixteen for that. to curb those worldly trends and simplify the work of the ministry some christians today are calling for a return to the early church model they believe what's ailing and inhibiting the work of the church today is the church structure itself mega churches with sprawling campuses legions of leaders and overgrown congregations that must be endlessly subdivided those are supposedly the villains that have corrupted and confused the church in recent years the argument suggests that Christians can't function and serve to fill to their full potential in a large church environment, and that the New Testament model of small house churches frees God's people to focus on what matters most. When there is no building to maintain, no dom- denomination to support or submit to, and no institutional oversight, the church is unshackled to serve the Lord and reach the surrounding community. This is offered as an attempt to return to the simplicity described in Acts 2:42. They are continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. But that was a church of, th- but that was a church of three thousand. However, we need to only look at the New Testament to see that life in the first-century church was anything but ideal Small congregation, simplified organization, and proximity to the apostles did not give the early church the spiritual advantage and insulation, we might assume. In fact, we see many of the maladies that plague the church today on display in its earliest incarnations. Put simply, the purity of the early church is overrated, and nowhere is that more apparent than in the book of Revelation brought up a really really important point about the church model and even the small house church model that is far from perfect and i think that's one thing that we in our home church have tried to pound in the head of of our you know followers and stuff too is that it's not a us versus them and mentality. We're not better. They're not horrible. This isn't the only way to do church. This isn't the perfect way to do church. Um, and that's very evident in, like MacArthur says, in the New Testament. Look at the problems that plagued and the close proximity. I mean, Paul was right, you know, real, real close to these guys and they were messing up horribly. I mean, we're dealing with a guy that knows the guy. So, it didn't matter how close how this is this is just really just a hard issue and there's really no um no way to get away from it it's it's kind of it, it kind of comes in in all directions and there's not one that's got it figured out over the other because this is like you can see this is a spiritual issue and a hard issue all right now here's where we go and uh, we're going to get into a little bit of Revelation here. When you, um, He's explaining this pretty good here in page 26 if you're following along. We often think of Revelation as a prophetic look at the second coming of Christ. We think of judgment that awaits the world because he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him it's in revelation 1 7 we tend to look at the promise of god's wrath and horror but also with a sense of relief that it will not fall on us but before the visions of the book of revelation reveal the subject of god's judgment against unrepentant sinners and the return of christ it opens with three chapters addressed to the churches specifically Christ dictates a message through the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Those were actual congregations located in towns throughout what we know today as Turkey, listed in an order that follows the ancient postal route. Each of these churches was founded as fruit of the apostles' ministry, primarily Paul, with Ephesus serving as the mother church for all the others in that region. Toward the end of his life, John ministered in the church at Ephesus, giving him an intimate connection to all those congregations. When the Lord revealed to him the revelation, however, John was living in exile in a penal colony on the rocky island of Patmos. On the night Christ was arrested, the Lord himself had warned his disciples that persecution was coming. If the world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's John fifteen, eighteen and 20. It did not take long before persecution was in full force. The church faced opposition from the very beginning, initially from Israel's religious leaders likewise it endured the hostile suspicions of rome roman culture was dominated by pagan and debauched religion christians did not fit in nor could they partake of much that constituted everyday life in that wicked society moreover christians simply made no sense to the people steeped in roman culture the doctrine and practice of the early church was so utterly misunderstood that the Romans falsely accused Christians of cannibalism, incest, and other sexual perversions. Rumors spread that Christians were atheists and political dissidents because they would not worship Caesar as God. In the year 1864, the Roman Emperor Nero played along these long-held suspicions to distract from his own misdeeds. That year, when a fire devastated much of the city of Rome, the public suspected Nero was to blame. Nero shifted his, des- his deserved blame to the Christians, instituting an official campaign of persecution against them across the city and beyond. It continued throughout the rest of his reign. During that first wave of Roman persecution, both Peter and Paul were executed, along with countless others who were hunted down and slaughtered for sport. Also, during Nero's reign, Rome waged a bloody war to suppress Israel's hopes for independence. Nearly a thousand towns, villages, and settlements across Israel were burned to the ground, with their inhabitants massacred or scattered. In AD 70, Jerusalem was overthrown and the temple destroyed. What was once the capital city of God's kingdom on earth was now under control of pagans. Just over a decade later, Rome initiated another wave of persecution under the emperor Domitian. The second campaign against the church lasted longer, from AD 81 to 96 and extended throughout the empire. Rome's assault on the church was organized and militarized. Thousands of Christians lost their lives while others were banished or fled. Historians tell us it was during this period that Timothy was clubbed to death. Tertullian, who was born about 60 years after the Apostle John died, claimed that the Apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil, and thence remitted into his island exile. Lacking first-hand witness testimony, we needn't insist on the veracity of that tradition, but it does accurately reflect the ferocity of Rome's campaign against Christians. Nero was said to smear Christians with pitch or pine resin and bind them to papyrus or bundles of wood, or he might crucify them on crosses soaked in creosote. He wouldn't then pierce their throats so they cannot. He would then pierce their throats so they could not scream, and set them ablaze while still alive, using them as torches to illuminate his garden parties. In Revelation 1.9, John tells us he was sentenced to the island at the prison of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Preaching the gospel was a crime punishable by death. Patmos is not at all the island paradise some might initially imagine. It's actually a crescent-shaped rock jutting up from the Arginian Sea, roughly ten miles long and five miles wide. In John's day... It was a desolate, isolated place, nearly 40 miles off the coast of Miletus, between Asia Asia Minor and Athens. John's sentence likely included the forfeiture of all his property and possessions, along with any civil rights he enjoyed under Roman law. Although he was living in exile, he was essentially given a death sentence, where he would spend the rest of his life doing hard labor in the quarries, with the meager food and desperate living conditions. Already in his, in his 90s, John could have not expected to survive long on Patmos. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 29 however the physical pain John endured could not compare to his anguish over his beloved churches in Asia Minor and their defection from the authority of God's word. From the letters Christ dictated to the individual churches, which we will examine in greater detail in chapters that follow, We know that they were engaged in a a variety of sinful behaviors, including sexual immorality, idolatry, and hypocrisy. They were tolerating sin and compromising with the pagan culture surrounding them. They willingly accommodated false teachers and even helped spread their heresy. In many ways, they were examples that would be repeated by churches in subsequent ages, including evangelical churches across the Western world today. 25 years before John's vision on Patmos, the Apostle Paul warned of the dangers facing the early church. He urged Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.8 In verses 13 and 14, Paul charged him to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Guard! through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure that has been entrusted to you. Paul knew persecution and suffering would reach Timothy's doorstep. He also knew how easy it would be to crumble and compromise when threatened with prison, torture, and death. Throughout his final epistle, he sought to prepare his young apprentice for future trials. He continued in chapter 2, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Be diligent, present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handle, handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Paul's concern wasn't just for Timothy, but for the whole church. He understood that spiritual threats that loomed on the horizon for God's people. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malice gossips, without self-control, Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Throughout his ministry, the Apostle Paul declared carefully warned about the danger of succumbing to false teachers and the need to be vigilant and discerning in the face of their threat now i urge you brethren keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them for such men are slaves not of our lord jesus christ of but their own appetites and by their smooth and fat flattering speech, they receive they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting it's Romans sixteen seventeen and eighteen. But he also understood that the fight to maintain the doctrinal and moral purity of the church is not exclusively eternal, that plenty of threats come from within as well, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. It's 2 Timothy four three and 3 and four. As he prepared to leave the Ephesian church, Paul gave the elders there a vivid warning to guard against to guard the flock God had entrusted to them. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert. That's Acts twenty twenty nine through thirty one. Not thirty years later the church had drifted from their love of Christ into empty piety, while several of the surrounding congregations had succumbed to the some of the very corruptions Paul warned of. By the time he reached that point in his life, John knew very well that all who desire to live live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He told people in his pastoral care, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. First John 3.13 But as John was living at his final days in torturous labor on the island of Patmos, he may have looked back in amazement at how different his circumstances were from what he expected when he set out to follow Jesus. Israel had very high expectations for the Messiah and the kingdom he would institute. They eagerly anticipated the arrival of an heir to the Davidic throne who would overthrow Rome's occupying forces, wipe out Israel's as- Wipe out Israel's enemies and usher in the fulfillment of all God's promises to Abraham, David, and the prophets. The salvation they awaited was temporal, not eternal. The disciples held that hope. Throughout Christ's ministry, they frequently jockeyed for supremacy in the promised kingdom of heaven. See Matthew 18, 1-5, Luke nine forty six 46-48. John and his brother James even enlisted their mother to petition the Lord on their behalf. That's Matthew 20, 20 and 21. Acts 1, 6 tells us right up to the moment Christ ascended into heaven, his disciples expected him to unleash his sovereign power and inaugurate his kingdom on earth. In the years that followed, the church exploded into existence and the Holy Spirit authenticated the apostles' ministry through miraculous gifts. It must have seemed that the Lord's return was imminent, but almost immediately the church was inundated with false teachers. Before long, many of John's apostolic brothers were dead at the hands of Rome. By the time he reached Patmos, he was the only apostle still alive. With believers on the run from merciless merciless persecution and with churches in serious spiritual decline, John might have had every reason to be disappointed and depressed. Had the Lord's plan for the church failed, it would be easy to imagine him crying out for a vision of what the Lord was doing in his church, some divine insight to encourage and comfort him in the twilight of his apostolic ministry. No matter how he, no matter how seasoned and spiritually mature he was, he surely could have used some hope and solace. Instead, what he saw was utterly terrifying. John tells us it caused him to fall to the ground like a dead man in Revelation 1.17. What he saw was the glorified Christ appearing as ruler, judge, and executioner. John, John saw the Lord in all his glory as the head of the church, ready to mete out righteous judgment, not on the world, but on his church. Christ's message to the church through John is unequivocal. Repent. Over and over, Christ called to these wayward churches to repent and reform. To the church at Ephesus, he said, Therefore, remember what you have, remember where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. That's Revelation 2.5. He had a similar message for the church in Perga- at Pergamum. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth in 2.16. He warned the church at Thyatira of severe judgment that awaited unless they repent in 2.22. He charged the church at Sardis to remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent in 3.3. And he gave a final warning to the church at Laodicea, reminding them that those whom I love I reprove, I discipline, Therefore, be zealous and repent, in 3.19. These were not casual, dispassionate warnings. Each call to repentance was accompanied by the devastating consequences that awaited if a church had failed to reform. In that sense, what John saw and heard was a fulfillment of Peter's words decades earlier in his first epistle. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God, in 1 Peter 4.17. Like Paul, Peter knew the many looming spiritual dangers that threaten the church, even from within. He also knew that the churches would in some cases succumb to temptations, false doctrines, the lure of the world, or the assaults of the evil one. Peter called his readers to persevere under persecution, which he saw in part as God's judgment against the unbelievers. Moreover Peter un- Peter understood that this is how God always operates with his people. As a good student of the Old Testament, Peter would have been familiar with the prophecy of Ezekiel 9, which was another terrifying vision of God's judgment. Then he cried out in my then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, "Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand." That's Ezekiel 9.1 Writing during the Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel saw a vision of God calling forward power to execute his judgment on his people. The vision continues. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces the north, each with a shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the Lord, glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over the abomination which is being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity, and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. God's wrath had reached a boiling point with apostate Israel. He made a provision to mark out the few who had, a, had remained faithful, but everyone else would face the fullness of his judgment. Moreover, the slaughter would start at the very seat of his authority and the center of worship, with the most culpable of Israel's apostasy. In essence, that is the same vision John saw. The Lord is a righteous judge coming to call his churches to repent of unfaithfulness to him. Most people who go to a church believe it is a safe place, perhaps the safest place, when it comes to the threats of judgment from the Lord. It's almost like climbing aboard the ark. Once you're safely inside, you're untouchable. But that's not true. Frankly, it's foolish and a dangerous notion. Just because you are in church, or something you call a church where Jesus' name is invoked and songs are sung about him, does not mean you're safe against the threats from God. Here in the opening chapters of Revelation, the Lord makes some very strong direct threats against churches. A church is no safer than the world in the, in that regard, and its transgressions are transgressions often demanded a swifter judgment. That's why this passage is so often overlooked and rarely discussed. While the Lord repeatedly called for Israel to repent and return to a right relationship with him, the early chapters of Revelation are the only place he employs similar language when dealing with the sins and failures of the churches. It makes us comfortable with the sins and failures of the churches. It makes us comfortable to think about God calling his church to repent and reform and threatening them with judgment if they don't but it's critically important that we heed the warnings Christ delivers to us through the pen of John in Revelation. Yes, these were letters written to specific local congregations about their particular issues, but they also stand as warnings to the entire church throughout its history. And as we'll see, the rebukes delivered to the churches of Asia Minor are just as applicable to the modern church, if not more so. The issues that corrupted churches in the first century are the same threats facing the church today. Idolatry, sexual immorality, compromise with the world and its pagan culture, spiritual deadness, and hypocrisy. Over the intervening centuries, the church has not outgrown these familiar pitfalls, nor has God lowered or softened His righteous standard. Regardless of when and where it exists, his demands he demands a pure church. That was his message to the churches in Revelation. Roughly 2,000 years later, Christ is still calling churches to repent and warning us about dire consequences if they don't. Alright, guys, that is the end of chapter 1 that he has there. Um... We will start next week and Saturday where we dive actually into the letters in chapter two. So we will go straight to that. And uh, he breaks down the letters really well. So we're looking forward to that.